Well, we're in Romans chapter 1. And I feel I'm running the risk of belaboring a point too much, but because of the significance that this point plays in the midst of Romans 1, I think that it's important that we hammer down on it, the subject of idolatry, in order to get our bearings. If you would start in verse 16 with me, and if you would read verse 16, last month's memory verse, if you'd read that with me, and 17 this month's memory verse with me, and then I will continue on to 25. Let's read together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What I want us to focus in this morning is this exchange that's taken place to bring our attention back to the creator-creature distinction. And the reason is, is because what we see at the end of verse 25, Paul breaks into a doxology here when he talks about that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the Creator. So notice that there's an option in line. You have the option of who you want to serve. You can either serve the Creator, or you can serve the creature. But it says here, after he says, rather than the Creator, and notice what he says, who is blessed forever. Amen. When we talk about the idea of a doxology, and Here's what I appreciate about Paul is he doesn't care where he's at in a sentence. He'll bust out in a doxology if he wants to. Um, But what we find about this, this is made up of a compound word in the Greek. It's doxa, which means praise, and lagos, which deals with the idea of utterance. To utter praise to God is the idea. And when you talk about someone who is blessed, what does it say? How? How long? Forever. In fact, if you look over at the marginal note, If you have a marginal note there in your NASB, it will say, unto the ages is the idea. Forever. 
for all time. There is never a time in history when the God and creator of all things is not worthy of praise. Never. And so what I want to do today is hopefully establish in our minds, um, I'm not going to be so foolish as to think that we're not all on one side completely. I understand the pulls of the world. I understand the struggles of daily life. I understand when um, life happens, sometimes we feel the need to walk away or to diminish what that regular praise may look like unto God. But the fact that He is blessed forever automatically puts weight in His corner as to why He is worthy. Not just that He's God, but just that everybody is going to bless Him forever. And so I think it's important that we hammer down on that and understand what we're dealing with when we talk about idolatry and its alternative of exalting the Creator. You would take your Bibles and we'll take a little trip to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to look around at various passages today. Believe it or not, and I know you don't, but my goal is not so much to preach as it is to read Scripture. This is something I've had prepared for two weeks and I've been waiting to share it with you. Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the giving of the ten words, the law. What's known as the law of Moses, or what we commonly call the Ten Commandments. But this time it's given to the second generation. It's not the Exodus generation. They disobeyed God when they were told they could go into the promised land and take it because God would fight for them. And they were smitten in the wilderness. They fell dead in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They did not enter the promised land. And so what's going on here in Deuteronomy is God is preparing the generation of 20 years old and under who has grown up over this time of wilderness wandering in order to inherit the land and not make the same mistake that their parents did. If you notice in chapter 5, verse 8, it says, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. And notice, if you have those marginal notes, marginal notes in the NASB are exceptional. They're very good. If you notice, it speaks of a graven image. And I want you to think about what constitutes a graven image. Anybody here do any kind of working with their hands where you're actually creating something? Anybody, do, anybody a whittler? Do you guys have whittlers in Wisconsin? You know, in Kentucky, we sit on front porches and drink insanely sweet tea and, and rock on a chair and whittle stuff, right? Corn cob pipes and the whole deal. Does anybody here whittle anything? That's not a stereotype. That's true. That's what we really do. We really have the Baptist in between Sunday school and, and church that are out on the back porch smoking because tobacco's their cash crop. That really happens. It's not a sin there. Here, I don't know, but there, it's not a sin. Um, who whittles? Who works with wood? Anybody, anybody, anybody been in Boy Scouts and crafted a Pinewood Derby car? Anybody ever done that? Who's done that? Raise your hand. And, and were you young when you did it? And man, you thought it was the coolest thing you've ever done in your life. Because you knew as soon as you put that CO2 thing in the back and they hit it, you were like, yeah. And all of a sudden, the word aerodynamics started to make all kinds of sense when you're 10 years old, right? And all of a sudden, you're trying to figure out how to make a sleek automobile that will get down there. How can I reduce the friction and win? Because you wanted those bragging rights. Well, what's what we talk about when we're speaking of fashioning something? engraving something, molding something, putting care and time and attention into it. Well, notice what God is saying here. Now, I'm not, 
I don't know if we can really make the association that Israel's crafting Pinewood Derby cars, but you get the you get the connection. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. And watch this, or any likeness. Now remember, likeness, right? That's the lie. The lie is exchanging the creator for a likeness of the creature. It's not really worshiping man and reptiles and, and four-footed beasts and those type of things. It's images of that. It's all of these writings that we see on the Egyptian walls uh, of how they've put people and jackals together or whatever it is. It's all of these things that we see that are morphing of created beings. And so notice the likeness of what is in heaven above. Notice that. The earth beneath or in the water under the earth. All three levels. Heaven, earth, and the water under the earth. I don't know what science tells you, but the Bible tells me that there's water under the earth. It says here, you shall not, now watch this, worship them or serve them. Did everybody catch that from Romans 1? Worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, yes. Here's the reason why. What you esteem is most valuable in your life is what you serve. We can sit here all day long and say, who here loves God? We'd all raise our hands. Why? Either because it's true, it's peer pressure, or that's what we ought to say. But we don't want to, you don't want to be the person who has their hands down and folded and everybody looks over and goes, well, how come he doesn't worship God? You know? What do you esteem most valuable in your life? Whatever that is, whatever is most important to you, is what you serve. And we find 24 different mentions in the Bible of a connection between what you worship is what you serve. What you worship is what you serve. You can easily get out of concordance and check it for yourself. Notice you shall not worship or serve them. And here's the reason why. For I, Yahweh your Elohim, am a jealous God. And let's touch that for just a second. God is not jealous in the way that we get jealous about things. God is jealous because He understands that there is nothing greater than Himself. And for us to settle for less is extremely disturbing because He sees things from an eternal perspective. Everything else is created. Only he is uncaused, and that's what creates this emotion. Notice it says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Real quick, notice that idolatry seems to have a generational connection with people. But here's the great contrast, but showing loving kindness, and that means his loyal love, his hesed is what it's called in Hebrew, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God was using ten things to govern a society. And I think that it's interesting to see that one of the first things that he starts off with is no other gods, no other graven images. Nothing else is a replacement to him. There is nothing greater. And for us to try to make something greater is to cheapen our thoughts of God. Think where you're at this morning. Think where you're at throughout the week. And whether or not you esteem God as he's described. My goal today is to read so much scripture about who God is that you walk out of here not being able to think of him in a diminished capacity whatsoever. And if you feel far from him, I pray that it bring you to repentance about your thinking of him. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
That's what we have to remember. It demonstrates everything about choices we make. And so we must think about him correctly, consistently, or we will find ourselves quickly off track. But think about where you're at this morning with God. Are you in a love relationship with him? You know, Chuck, Chuck, I need to have you do that every week. You smoke much better about 1 John 1, 9 than I ever have. Good gravy. Fellowship. Are you in fellowship with the Lord? Are you walking with Him daily, moment by moment, submitting yourself to Him? And it's not because you have to or you ought to. It's because why else would you not want to? Who else would you want to hold hands with other than the Creator of all things? Maybe it's an important point that we focus on. Let's see some examples of why this is important. Turn with me to Jeremiah 9. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, you will know that depression is not a new thing. Jeremiah is an extremely depressing book. I know that doesn't make you want to read it. But what you find is that even though there is friction in this life, and even though it may cost us great hardship, the Lord does not change. And He still loves His kids unbelievably. Jeremiah 9, look at verse 23 and 24. I encourage you, if you don't have this verse down, maybe print it out or something, post it on your refrigerator. It's an excellent verse. Thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Now let's talk about this word boast real quick. It's a very famous word in the Hebrew. You've probably heard it before, Hallel. And there are portion of the Psalms that are known as the Hallel Psalms. The idea here is praise and to shout is actually what it is, to admire out loud, uh, to eulogize or to exclaim or to celebrate. What are you celebrating, exclaiming in, in your life? What are you shouting about in your life is the idea. In fact, we all know the word hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. I don't know if anybody has licked their finger and held it to the wind as far as Miley Cyrus is concerned, but she's gotten the concept of hallelujah all wrong. If you've seen her new video, don't. You'll need to wash your eyes with lye and then stab your ears. So I don't know what else to call it except hell on film. I'm serious. It's vile. It's vile. And she has no problem using the word Hallelujah. She has no problem telling you that she's evil. She has no problem telling you that she's a witch. It's very interesting. That's feminism. So hallelujah. Hallel, praise, shout. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, in his intellect, in his learning. Some of you in here are smart cookies. But that's not where your hope is. And I hope that's not where your praise is, where your shout is. Notice it says, And let not the mighty man boast of his might. I'm going to tell you something, Kevin Ham. First time I met Kevin, I was impressed with his biceps. I was like, good googly, this man's been doing something and he's been doing something hard. Where's Chris at? Chris Kopecky, where you at? Hold your hand up, man. You ever shook Chris's hand? Good grief. It's like you just grabbed the hands of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Those things are huge. And why is that? Because they work hard with their hands. That could be something to boast in. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've made. Look at what I've fashioned. 
kind of puts the connection to graven images. And, you know, well, ultimately we're worshiping this God, but where did this idol come from? Well, really, I made it. There's where the pride is, right? So notice, don't boast in your might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. Some of you are well off. Some of you have wealth. Some of you are very fortunate. But that's not where your hallel lies, where your shout lies. What is worth shouting about? Notice what it says, verse 24, but let him who boasts, who hallels, hallel of this, that he understands and knows me. And notice that it's a capital M. That he understands, that he is circumspect about, he's wise, that he has a proper grasp or insight into God, that he knows, that he learns to know. It's the idea of when Adam and Eve came to know good and evil, that they learned this thing. It's the idea of a coming to know something. If you're going to exclaim and shout, exclaim and shout the fact that you know the creator of all things, who needs nothing, who relies on no one and who provides everything. There's the place to boast. Remember this whole idea of being wise or being mighty or having riches or all things that he graciously provides. They all came from him. We see examples like this in Samson and Solomon. They're all things that came from God. But they are not reasons to shout or be joyful. But let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, says Yahweh. In other words, he exercises his attributes on earth, and those are the things that he takes joy in. So take joy in the one who does these things. Boast about him. There's where the proper perspective lies. And then what I think is interesting is that when it moves into chapter 10, and we're going to read a lot here, but I want you to see, um, in fact, it even says that you're heading a satire of idolatry. Watch how Jeremiah unfolds this. It says, Hear the word of Yahweh, which Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, do not learn the way of the nations. Now think of that. Don't pay attention to the ways of the world. Stop subscribing to pagans. I love Isaiah 2.22. In fact, i got a hankering in my gut that I need to read it to you real quick. That is a Kentucky word. Isaiah 2.22, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? That's what we're getting at. Don't learn the way of the nations. Don't learn the way of the pagans, the world system that Satan has created. And do not be terrified by the signs of heavens, of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are delusion. Everybody see that word delusion? Notice your marginal note, vanity. It's a breath. It's like when we go out to our cars at 30 degrees below in the middle of January and you breathe out and you see it for a second and then it dissipates. It's there for a moment. It's temporal. It's not of him who is blessed forever. Amen. It's not the eternality of the creator. It's there for a moment and then it disappears. Notice what it says about that. The customs of the people are delusion. They're a vapor. They're a breath. Because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. In other words, it's a human actually presiding over its form. 
It says they decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Does anybody get the picture of a Christmas tree in your mind when you're looking at that? I mean, you just can't, can't help it. And notice, if they didn't nail it secure, it would fall over. That's how frail it is. Anybody have to nail God down? You'd be in big trouble if you tried, wouldn't you? He's as stable as you get. So notice it moves on here, verse 5, I love it. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. Now watch this. And they cannot speak. What does the Bible tell us about Yahweh? Genesis 1-3. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1, or sorry, John 1, 1-3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, right? Nothing was made that has been made through him. All things have been made through him. When he speaks, nothing becomes something. So notice, these idols can't speak. Notice, they must be carried. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, over the face of the deep. He doesn't need to be carried. God is Spirit. He can be anywhere. And notice this, because they cannot walk. Genesis 3-8, after sin took place, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden, right? Or in the garden in the cool of the morning. He doesn't need our help. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm. They have no power, nor can they do any good. In other words, they're not good, and they're not bad. They're nothing. That's what they equal up to be. Now, just like Paul, Jeremiah switches here. There's none like you, O Yahweh. You are great. And great is your name in might. John 18, 5 and 6. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? I am. And they fell back onto the ground. Why? Great is his name. His name holds power. Notice what it says next. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. Why? Because the fear of Yahweh is the beginning. Knowledge. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. In other words, if you were to survey all the greatness that we esteem on this earth, they do not even begin to hold a fraction of a candle to the Lord our God. Now he moves back to idols, but they are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, and notice it's the same word for vanity that we saw before, their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. In other words, you know where his stuff comes from. Anybody know where God's stuff comes from? And I don't have a better word than stuff. I'm sure that's in the Hebrew technical somewhere. Anybody know where he comes from? Aren't we told that his ways are beyond finding out? How unsearchable are his riches? Who knows? But notice here, you can look at these idols and say, here's where that came from, and here's where that came from, and here's where that came from. You can find it out. It's not a problem. Notice the contrast between the two. The work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing, which is interesting because those are royal colors. But in order to fit this idol, somebody had to dye them and sew them. Somebody else had to provide for this idol that people want to bow down and worship. Somebody else was behind the scenes of creating the things that we esteem greater than God. 
This is the foolishness. This is why the Bible can use a word like stupid and not apologize for going in that direction. It says they are all the work of skilled men. Verse 10, he goes back. But Yahweh is the true Elohim. He is the living Elohim and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations could not endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, and watch this, the gods, everybody see that's little g? It's because it's just speaking of the fallen angels, demons. The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth, notice the contrast, will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. In other words, the creatures will die. The Creator lives forever. He is blessed forever. Amen. He says here, verse 12, it is he who made the earth by his power. He's the creator. He's omnipotent. Who established the world by his wisdom, by his omniscience. Notice his attributes just come pouring forward. And by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. In other words, the ocean goes as far as the ocean goes because God says that's all you can do. It goes no further. He sets the boundary line. He allows it to be what it is, and he restrains it from going beyond. His desire. All the active elements in creation are derived from Yahweh and they're not found in scientific processes over long periods of time with order and symmetry resulting out of rampant chaos. That is a lie that we have bought into, that our school systems have bought into. It is a godless ideology. It is not there. It is a substitute. It is the exchange. And we're funding it with our tax dollars. Lord, help us. Verse 13, when he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth, and he makes lightning for the rain, and he brings out the wind from his storehouses. And then he says it again, every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, same word for lie, same word for deception, same word for falsehood. And there's no breath in them. They are breathless. <laughs> they are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Let me stress this real quick before we move to another point because I've got a couple of quotes that I want to show you here in a second, but I wrote something down to read because I knew I wouldn't remember it. When a subject starts with the assertion of our knowledge, we must remember that this knowledge is fractional at best. We will even find experts who are deficient in their fields only because the subject's involving creation, anthropology, and zoology are so vast and intricate. Those who claim to know much run the risk of pride, making their knowledge forceful, argumentative, or belittling and bullying because of their suppression of the truth that has taken place because God is the beginning of all subjects. If you ever watch a video with Richard Dawkins, especially if he's going up against a Christian. I encourage you sometime, if you have the opportunity, one of the beautiful things about YouTube is they have a full 
uh, debate that takes place between John Lennox, who is a uh, Orthodox Christian uh, who teaches at Oxford and is taught at Cambridge. He teach, teaches mathematics, and he's also one of the uh, chairman deans of the School of Theology there, uh, and, and Richard Dawkins. And it's a long debate, but it's an interesting one because you find some places where Dawkins is speechless, and he's very cordial. But you'll see that underneath him is a um, bubbling fury that wants to unleash. And you can actually find him in some uh, interviews going off on Christianity and diminishing the Bible and these types of things. And the reason is is because he is convinced that he's superior in his intellect to all of his opponents. And he probably is. He's an extremely smart man. He's just foolish when it comes to the beginning of all subjects of not starting with God. And that's his downfall. I encourage you to take the time and to see something like that. A couple of quotes I have for you, if you want to look up. If you've never read The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, I encourage you to get a copy of that book. You can find it pretty cheap on eBay. Get a used copy and read it. And spend time meditating on it with your Bible alongside. Here's the danger that we run risk of, and this is why I want to hammer on this point between idolatry and who God actually is, as the Bible tells us and as he reveals himself. When we try to imagine what God is like, we must of necessity use that which is God as the raw material for our minds to work on. Hence, whatever we visualize God to be, he is not. For we have constructed our image out of that which he has made. Notice that's the creation. And what he has made is not God. If we insist on trying to imagine him, we end with an idol made not with hands, but with thoughts. And an idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like. And what he is like is, of course, a composite of all the religious pictures we have seen, all the best people we have known or heard about, and all the sublime ideas we have entertained. For the longest time, when I wanted to think about God, I thought about my grandfather. That's idolatry. That's not God. But I run that risk of wanting to try to grab something that I can relate to And the greatest thoughts I can ever have about God is that I can't grasp him in my mind, but yet he still wants me to relate to him on his terms, not on my terms. I think that is the epidemic that we see, not just in the world and the church. We want to make God a God that we can relate to on our terms and that is accepting of our sin and that is okay with our diminished thinking of him. So let's see some mind-blowing things about God. I'm actually more on time today than I've been in the past few sermons. Let's turn over to Ezekiel 1. Lord works miracles, right? How many of you are familiar with Ezekiel 1? No one? Is that because it's in the Old Testament? Okay, just making sure. I'll tell you what, guys, blow the dust off your Old Testament sometimes. It's beautiful. A lot of us are maybe familiar with Ezekiel 1. We'll start reading it. You'll go, oh yeah. I guarantee you none of us can explain Ezekiel 1. In fact, I saw a rendering in uh, 
William McDonald's commentary. He has a large one-volume commentary called the Believer's Bible Commentary. It's, it's pretty good commentary. There's some parts that are weird. But he actually, because he's an artist, tried to come up with a depiction of what we're getting ready to see. And even he admitted in the little explanation of his picture, you'll notice that I couldn't include this and couldn't include this because I don't know how to. Uh, to to me, I'm 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 thankful for an honesty like that because who can who can sum it up? I'm going to read through this and give no explanation, and then at the end, I want to point out something interesting to you. We're going to start in chapter one of Ezekiel, verse four. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something glowing, like, sorry, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Pay attention to the word like all through this. Like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it, there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had, hu- a hum- they had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. And their feet were like calves' hoof, like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion. On the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being, and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward, wherever the Spirit was about to go. And pay attention to that, wherever the Spirit was about to go, that's the Lord. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, and lightning was flashing from the fire, and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings, for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling burl, and all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Wherever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And wherever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction, and the wheels rose close beside them, for the Spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Now over the head of the living beings, there was something like an expanse 
like the awesome gleam of crystal or glass might be an understanding of that, spread out over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Wherever they, whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapsus lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. You can connect verses 22 through 28 with Revelation 4. If you want to read that sometime. But notice that everything leading up to verse 26 is simply what goes on around God. Did everybody notice that? It's not God. This is his entourage. We say it today, this is how he rolls. Having wheels, we mean that literally. But notice when it comes time to describe God what you see. Notice in verse 26, the end, that there's something that resembled a throne high up and a figure with the appearance of a man. Aren't we created in his image and his likeness? Notice we're in the image of him. But this, this is talking about what he's like. This, he is the prototype, not us. He's the standard. Notice after that, verse 27, from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. Now everybody give... Ezekiel some grace here he's trying but can you imagine in your description of a person hey I met such and such what they look like well from their belt up they were glowing metal and crazy fire what they look like from the waist down crazy fire (laughs) that's what you got to go on and that's what's interesting notice we don't see anything about his face we don't see anything about his face his appearance is glory Glory like we don't understand. And what surrounds him? Radiance. You know what radiance is? Glory. He is glory upon glory upon brightness upon glory. That's our God. You say, well, Jeremy, that didn't help me a lot. It's neat, but maybe it doesn't help me a lot. Well, let's do this. Let's turn to Revelation 1. Of the many things that are abundantly profound about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the fact that He is God. Revelation is written by the Apostle John. 
you probably won't find an apostle in Scripture that was closer to the Lord than John. In fact, if you'll remember from Foundational Framework, I like bringing this up. We often picture, we read through about the betrayal when Jesus predicts his betrayal at the Last Supper. We often picture, anybody ever pictured that where Jesus kind of says it out loud that somebody's going to betray him? We get some of the inkling from the Gospels and you know they were immediately troubled. But then there's an interesting scene that goes on. John is sitting next to Jesus at the table and it says that he actually leans back right here on Jesus' chest. Which that's just cool by itself, okay? But then he turns and he asks Jesus, who is it, Lord? And it's interesting to see out of all the things that Jesus could have said, he actually shows John who's going to betray him. And if you read John's Gospel, John makes it very clear that when Judas is brought up, he is notified as or signified as the betrayer, the one who betrayed him. That was a very interesting and special moment they had. Now think about that closeness that they had. John gets a vision. He has been exiled to the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ and holding fast to the word of God, which is a good prototype of what we should be doing today always. And he did get persecuted for it. So while he's on Patmos hammering out license plates, something happens here. In verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And if you were to do research on this, you would find that it was custom at that time that if you had a sash that started at your shoulder and came down to your waist and went across your chest, that was the garb that a judge would wear in that time. And he is fit for judgment. And that's how he's unfolding or displaying himself. And he says here, verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool. See, some of you are upset because you're getting older. Don't. Jesus had white hair. He has white hair now. It's okay. Uh, Like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. Every father knows that feeling, right? His feet were like burnished bronze. Notice we're talking about brilliance here, shining radiance. It says, when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its, in its strength. There's some, some translations have shining at full strength. It says, when I saw him, now remember, this is John who saw some things that no one else saw. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's seen Jesus in a glorified form before, but when he saw this, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Anybody ever passed out? Can you imagine passing out by seeing the Lord? And don't listen to anything Benny Hinn has to say about that subject, but seriously. Getting a glimpse of the Savior, and yet being so close to Him in His earthly life, and being close and intimate with Him in service. Remember, John is the same one here who wrote First John about what it is to be in fellowship with Him. He knows that. He even tells you in verse 4, and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. We want you to have this fellowship. We're going to tell you how to do it. Confess your sin. You'll be brought back into fellowship with Him. John knows. 
And regardless of the intimacy and the experience that he had with the Lord, when he catches a glimpse of him, he can't help but to fall to the ground. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Did that make you mad in scripture every time you see this? An angel shows up, somebody falls down, is dead. And the first thing they said, fear not. Why didn't you tell me that before you popped out of nowhere and scared me half to death, right? Notice, do not be afraid. I am the last, I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death. Any of you scared of death? Don't be. Jesus holds the keys. I have the keys of death and of Hades. If anything that we try to think about God is going to be of a diminished representation of Him, if anything we try to carve or paint or mold, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves with a lot of pictures I see of Jesus is He's just too white. He's too American for me. He's a Jew. He probably resembled what Osama bin Laden looked like more than any of us. That's not blasphemous. That's just of Middle Eastern descent. How should we think about him? How do you think about, how do you grasp the incorruptible God in an acceptable way that's not blasphemous, that doesn't run in the realm of idolatry or graven images or a form of our own imagination that, that actually desecrates him and blasphemes him, but rather glorifies him? We marvel at stained glass, but it's not the answer. If you would, turn over to Deuteronomy 4. This will be our final point. Remember what I said about Deuteronomy before. Moses is preparing the second generation to get their mind straight so that they can receive everything that God wants to give them. But he's got to get them thinking correctly about how to live life, about how to exist amongst being surrounded by myriads of pagans and idolatry, false worship, fertility cults, everybody smoking peyote and whatever else you find going on in this crazy land. And if you think that's far-fetched, you, you look at the word sorcery and witchcraft in the Bible, it's the Greek word that means drug use. It's where we get the word pharmacy from, pharmakeia. It's the same idea. It's talking about being under the influence of something that uh, incapacitates you or alters uh, your well-being. God gives us an example through Moses, and, and Moses wants to take us to a certain moment in time because he is going to phrase for us perfectly how we should think about this without being blasphemous in our thoughts. Look what he says, verse 10. Remember the day you stood before Yahweh your Elohim at Horeb, and real quick, Horeb is the same thing as Mount Sinai. So this is when they come out, they're set free. They come out, they come to the mounts uh, of Sinai for instruction. And this is the first giving of the law, Okay, Exodus 20. It says, when Yahweh said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may, now pay close attention, guys. If you've been in Deuteronomy class, this is, this is a refresher for you, but by no means should it be stale. Pay attention how important this is that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach 
their children. Notice there are two reasons that are given of why he collected them. Number one, to fear the Lord. Number two, to pass it on to their kids. I promise you this, our reception of the word of God has not changed. Those are still the two functions that God wants to communicate in and through us now. Even though we're not Israel, the purposes are the same. Verse 11, watch this. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. Darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then Yahweh spoke to you from the midst of the fire. Now pause for a second. Did the people of Israel have something to look at? Did they? He spoke fire. Notice what it said. Darkness, cloud, thick gloom. We normally don't associate darkness and thick gloom with Lord, right? But notice how how this is describing. This is what you could have physically beheld at this time. But notice that he's not directing their attention towards that. Look what he says. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no what? No form. No image. Nothing to go about and replicate later. You heard words. Pay very close attention. Only a what? Only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, his contract, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you were going over to possess it. In other words, everything that God said was to be obeyed because the origin was in the words that he revealed to us. Now watch how this moves forward. Verse 15, so watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. There was something to see, but that's not what you're to pay pay attention to. That's not what you're to grab a hold of. That's not what you embrace. That's not it. So that you do not act corruptly. In other words, if you don't watch yourselves carefully and if you try to create a form, you have stepped into the realm of corruption says here, and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, in the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and the likeness of any fish that is in the water below. Does everybody see the semblance to Romans 1 here? Exchanging the incorruptible God for corruptible man, birds, Reptiles, four-footed creatures, the lie, the lie, mentally sculpting something that is less than who God has said he is. Verse 19, and beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven. In other words, it's not astrology. It's not horoscopes. It's not astronomy. It's not the angels. Notice it says here, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Remember the connection? What you worship is what you what? What you serve. 
Notice that Moses is warning them in no uncertain terms. You'll be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your Elohim has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. These are things given by His grace, but they're not to be esteemed. They're gifts, but they're not special. How do you think about God correctly without thinking about God corruptly? You think upon His Word. You think upon what He said. You memorize His Word. Colossians 3.16, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. You hold fast to the Scriptures. You invest yourself in Bible doctrine. Blessed is the man who walks not in the ways of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. It's his word. It's his word. I'm not saying put your Bible on a shrine and bow down to it. What I'm saying is put the word of God in your mind, in your heart, and be cleansed by it. Can we agree with that? Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for the beauty of your word. Any false representations we may have held fast to, let us hand those over to you today to be melted down and to be thrown into the stream. Father, whatever substitutes that we have deemed suitable or acceptable representations of you, these things have done nothing but incapacitate us to think of you more clearly, to fear you, to speak of your loving kindness that if we're going to boast in anything, that we boast in the fact that we understand and we know you. And to do that, we must think of you correctly. Father, I pray that the beauty of your promises and your loving kindness towards us would arrest our heart and minds right now, that we would no longer be resistant of your Spirit to lead us into greener pastures. But Father, we would desire, desire deeply, for your word to fill us, to wash us, to clean us, and to renew our thinking about the great God and maker, the uncaused I am who has fashioned all things. Father, let us understand your greatness, your power, that you are greatly to be praised. Forgive us where we have thought falsely. Forgive us if we have strayed into areas of vanity, of vapor, of the temporal. We've settled for those things that will satisfy now and that we have reasoned ourselves into thinking that's acceptable. Father, you are the incorruptible God, the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And we praise you. May the words that we sing now be genuine. May our hearts be humbled. 
May we be freshly aware that knees are for kneeling, that hands are for raising in praise to you, that our voices have been given to exalt the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray it in his precious name.